Welcome again as we continue our journey through the commandments and learn about God's beautiful, wonderful recipe for a wonderful life. Let's begin with uh, an opening prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit we may be truly wise and ever enjoy in his consolations. Through Christ our Lord, amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, we're going to get started here with the Ten Commandments going through the list. Call them out loud and clear. What's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God, you shall not have strange gods before me. Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number three, remember to keep holy the Lord's day. Very good. Number four, honor your father and your mother. Number five, you shall not kill. Number six, you shall not commit adultery. Number seven, you shall not steal. Number eight, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And number nine, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and you shall not covet your neighbor's good. Number 10, very good, very good. So this session we're going to be focusing on the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And this is about our sexuality and how do you compact the greatness and the wonder and the mystery of our sexuality into a short presentation? Well, we'll do our best and I know by the end of it there's going to be some things that you're going to think, well, he didn't cover this or that or the other thing. And that's just the constraint of time. And so I encourage you to explore it. We've got some resources listed in your workbook there that you can explore some of these things. And so we encourage you to do that. Now, there's this village in Ireland, and one Sunday morning, Patrick shows up for church. Now, Patrick is not accustomed to coming to church, and so it was kind of peculiar. And so after Mass, Father goes up to Patrick. Ah, Patrick, it's good to see you here this morning. What brings you to church, my lad? He goes, ah, hello, Father. Yes, I, I came to church today because I lost my hat. And Father says, you lost your hat? I don't quite understand. Well, why does that have to do with coming to church today? He says, well, you see, I lost my hat a couple weeks ago, and I keep seeing Willie walking around with my hat. And so I thought, you know, I can come to church because I know he'll be here, and when he goes up to communion, I can go in in the pew and I can get my hat back. Ah, I see, I understand now, but, but I'm a little confused there, Patrick. I don't see that you have your hat back. He goes, oh, no, Father, I... I didn't get my hat back. He says, well, why not? He says, well, Father, it was, it was your sermon on the Ten Commandments. And when you got to the Sixth Commandment on adultery, I finally remembered where I left my hat. <laughs> it's a fun joke to laugh at, but why do we laugh at it? Why do we laugh at something as sacred as our bodies and our sexuality? I think we laugh at this because we don't appreciate how great and wonderful God has made us in our bodies. And it's because our culture and our society, we've degraded our sexuality. We've cheapened it, made it so much less than what God created it for. My hope today is that we restore that sacredness and the greatness of our sexuality and the gift of being co-creators with God in our bodies. In order to do this, we're going to have to get a little muddy again like we did in the last session. And so bear with me as we go through some of this. There's some ugliness of this, but we'll get to the good stuff after the, the group discussion. Antonio Stradivari 
who's a 17th century creator of some of the world's most renowned string instruments. Stradivarius violins, very famous. And people have extreme high regards for these fine instruments. And they're highly prized by the richness and quality of the sound that they produce. The world's renowned violinist, Yo-Yo Ma and Julian Lord Weber, use these violins to create beautiful, wonderful music. Some of these violins have sold for $3.6 million. Highly valued, highly revered. Now you go out to the stadiums out here and there's this guy there, he's got a plastic bucket. And he sets it down and he has drumsticks and he starts beating on this bucket. It's kind of fun to listen to and people enjoy it. Doesn't quite come up to the standards of Stradivarius, but it's kind of fun. Now, what if somebody pays $3.6 million for a Stradivarius violin turns it over so the back is facing up and takes drumsticks and starts beating on that violin. Wouldn't you just want to scream? You could make music with it, but how inferior would that music be compared to what it was designed for? And you think if Antonio Stradivari came in while somebody's beating on one of his fine instruments with drumsticks, how would he feel? How disrespected and angry would he be if you saw somebody doing this? Violins are great instruments and they're beautiful, but they don't come even close to what God has created in the gift of our bodies. How much more precious is the gift of our bodies and our sexuality than a Stradivari violin? magnitudes greater in the ingeniousness of how our sexuality worked and the purpose for which it was created. Yet through adultery, pornography, sex change operations, contraceptives, and the list goes on and on, our culture has desecrated what God has created to be great and reduced the human body to be so much less. Similar to somebody taking their $3.6 million Stradivari and beating on it with drumsticks. And think of how God just wants to scream and how disrespectful it is to God who's given us this wonderful gift our sexuality is intended to glorify God. It's intended to build and strengthen and unite the marriage couple in their love and in their relationship and to show that love to their children. Sometimes we pursue love in the wrong ways and in the wrong places. We pursue love in a disordered way. So our culture has taken what is holy and sacred and it's made it ugly, it's cheapened it, it's reduced it to something very inferior. So what is intended to be life-giving has become self-serving. Now before we continue, I just want to say a thing about the sacrament of marriage. The sacrament of marriage as sanctioned by God is a sacred relationship of two people, one man and one woman. In today's world, marital infidelity includes things like sexting. How about romance novels, cyber romances? Adultery is an injustice to everybody involved, including a future spouse. So marital infidelity applies both to those who are married and to those who are not yet married. And it damages that covenant, that holy covenant of, in the sacrament of marriage because that marriage is no longer a total commitment and it's no longer exclusive when we bring in another person into that relationship. And that's what marital infidelity is, adultery is, is we're bringing another person or persons into the marital relationship. What is supposed to be between 
one person, one, one man, and one woman. And that third person or other people come in and they interfere with that relationship and it damages that relationship and it damages the sacramental covenant of exclusivity and total commitment. The world's view of adultery is that they want to just water adultery down, make it so that it's not sounding so serious. And so here's another euphemism. Oh, it's cheating. It's not the same. It's not, let's call it what it is. And so adultery waters it down into this euphemism of cheating. They also say, well, you know, if you don't get caught, it's okay. Nobody's hurt. Nobody's, there's, there's no damage done here. And if it's consensual, what's the big deal? Let's not make a big deal out of it. And they say, well, as long as it's safe, then, then it's okay. You commit adultery in a safe way. And if nobody gets hurt, no harm, no foul, right? See the lies in these? The problem here is with adultery, somebody always gets hurt. Remember one of the earlier sessions on the commandments, we talked about how the natural laws that God put in place, they're always in place, and we may not see the direct results of them and the consequences right away, but they're always in play, always active, and they're automatic. And it's not God punishing us, but it's us initiating the, the dominoes that fall into place and fall over and the consequences that are caused by our actions. Somebody always gets hurt and it's never safe. And what happens is afterwards, people start to feel the shame. And in the shame, people retreat and become isolated and they try and hide what they have done. And as they hide what they have done and they realize it, depression sets in. And as depression sets in, people sometimes punish themselves and they engage in destructive behaviors. In addition to the emotional and spiritual damage of so-called cheating, we have the physical damage. The physical damage of contracting a disease which leads to infertility. Some people say, oh, worst thing that could happen is somebody gets pregnant if they commit adultery. That's not the worst thing that could happen. Infertility is a real consequence of casual sex. How much of a heartache is it for a couple to realize they can't have kids because of something one of them did earlier on in life? With adultery, there's another very serious physical damage, and that is, should somebody get pregnant in adultery, now Satan's got a hook in him. And Satan says, well, you can take care of this. It's just a blob of cells. It's just some tissue. You don't want to have this burden. And so now the physical damage is taking another's life. The damage of adultery goes further. It's not just about the people involved in that adultery. There's a ripple effect that cascades across the families, the children that a couple might have, or the future children that they would have had had the marriage not suffered the blow and ended in divorce. How about the siblings and how it impacts them, or the nephews and nieces who look up to their aunts and uncles and then they see what's happening and they are disillusioned. It affects them and the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren, there's a ripple effect in the damage that's caused with adultery. Adultery is a choice that trades something of greater value for something of lesser value. It's a choice that chooses a counterfeit, pornography or a strip club, over the real deal, which is the love and the authentic relationship that we all desire. It's a choice that causes us to become less like God. And it's a choice that causes us to become less human. It strips us of our dignity. And as it strips us of our dignity, we become a slave to the passions. It takes control over us. 
So adultery is not just about being good or bad. It's about settling for less than what God is offering to us. So in order to get a handle on adultery, we need to take a look at what lust is and how Satan uses lust to deceive us and to lure us into his trap. Lust, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it says lust is a disordered desire for inordinate enjoyment of sexual pleasure. And it continues saying sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. So this lust causes us to disorder our priorities. Again, trading what is great and settling for something that is less, but it also puts pleasure over relationships. It puts ourselves over God. And lust replaces our freedom. It, it strips us from our freedom and it enslaves us in the desire, the disordered desire for sexual pleasure. You ever hear the phrase opportunity knocks, only knocks once? I think probably most everybody's heard that, that phrase. Well, in regards to lust, it doesn't seem to just knock once. It seems like it leans on the doorbell <laughs> and it keeps ringing and ringing and it keeps ringing and it keeps ringing until we either stop listening to it or we give in to it. We need to go back to this cycle of confusion to see how this all plays out. And we see that as the target of Satan's lies and deception to enslave us in lust, it behooves us to understand his tactics and how he works so we can recognize it. Just like a football team, they want to understand how the other team is going to play so they can recognize those plays and be able to respond to it. We need to do the same to see how Satan uses lust. So the roots of lust, it starts with the temptation. It's Satan whispering in our ear, hey, this isn't a big deal. And if we push God off into the margins of our lives, we don't recognize that Satan is whispering a lie into our ears. And he says, you know, a quick peek won't matter. It's just, a, just for a moment, just take a quick peek at this here. Or maybe a little flirting, not a big deal. It's just all in fun or... Maybe it's just a professional lunch with somebody of the opposite sex from the office. The problem is when we take a quick peek or do a little flirting, what it does is it whets the appetite. And as it whets the appetite, the temptation is no longer from the outside coming in. It's now within us and it's tempting us from within. It started to take hold of us and being deadly this lust starts to sap us of our strength and as we become weak the lust expands and grows more until we become its slave this is how satan gets us to listen to his lies and how the lust works once it starts to take hold and as we become the slave to lust, we lose our human dignity. And falling into adultery, it causes a wake of destructions. Because now we've got to hide what we've done. We've got to protect it. And we, so we do that with lies. And that breaks down the relationships that we have. And so as we start to listen to the world's worldly wisdom, those lies of Satan, it confuses us. And then we start making bad decisions and hiding things with lies, doing things that we shouldn't. And this damages our relationship. And as it damages our relationships, it starts to isolate us. And so we see this cycle of confusion and how the lust comes into play. And it leaves a wake of destruction in its path. And we don't know how to get off of this, this cycle. Now, some people say, well, looking's not a big deal. It doesn't hurt, and they're doing it because that's their profession, or uh, they're doing it willingly. And so nobody gets hurt. Well, let me tell you a story about how pornography and nightclubs, strip clubs, 
just looking truly causes a wake of damage. There was a, uh, a, a man that gave a talk at uh, one of the men's programs that I went to a few years back. And this man was a previous, he was a former manager of a strip club. And he talked about how he recruited young women into the sex industry. And he says it starts in late spring, late May, June time frame, when the high school girls have just graduated. And he'd go in and hang out where the girls hang, hung out and buy them a drink and get to be friends with them. And he'd typically find those that were very pretty, but also those that didn't have a clear direction as to what they're going to do next in life. And he'd say, well, you know, you can come down and you're probably looking for some work. And I work for, for a bar and you can come down and work here at the bar with me. And, and uh, it pays really well. The tips at the, in my bar are very good. Sounds good to the young girl who has no other plans. So she goes down there and finds out, oh, this is a nightclub. And the manager would say, don't, don't worry about it. All, I'm, all I want you to do is, is serve drinks. That, that's all I want you to do. So don't worry about you know, what we're doing. And, and I, I think you'll be fine with it after you give it a try. So she gives it a try. And, and she starts to notice the attention that the girls up on the platform are getting. And she kind of likes that attention a little bit. He says that within two weeks of starting, these young girls in the prime of their life are up on the platform. And they really like the excitement and the, and the, uh, uh, the attention that they're getting and the tips are great, but after a short while, they start realizing what's happening. They start feeling the shame and the guilt. And they go and they say to them, you know, I don't know if I can do this anymore. This is just, this is just wrong. I'm just feeling so depressed. And, and he says, you yeah, know, that, that's natural. That, that's, that, you know, this always happens. But I'll tell you, I've got something that'll help you here. Take these pills here, and these pills will, will, will get you through this. And so she starts taking the pills, and they make her feel a little bit better. And this goes on for a little while. And then he says, well, wait a minute. You're making the big money now. I can't just keep giving you these pills. You need, to, you need to buy them. And so they start spending their money on these pills. And this goes on for a period of time until the following spring when the new recruits graduate from high school. And he goes and does the same thing with them and he brings them in and now the girl that he recruited the previous year, she's old hat. And he says to her, you know, we've got these new recruits that we brought in, he may not call them recruits, these new young women who have come in, and, you know, I think we need to let you go. And she goes, well, wait a minute, I, I depend on this now. I, you know, you, how am I going to pay for, for the pills that, that I need to take, and I've got a lifestyle now that, that requires me to be making this money. I can't, you can't just let me go. And he says, don't worry, don't worry. I've got you taken care of. I've got a friend down the street and he runs another place down there that I think you'll like. It's not as nice as this one here, but, but he'll take good care of you. Go down there and give him my name. And so she goes down there and, and she pushes the previous year's recruits out the door. And then a year later, the same thing happens to her. Now she's dependent upon the drugs, she's dependent upon the money, and there's no place for her to go except out on the streets. The only thing she knows how to do is to sell herself, and she has to do this to satisfy the addictions that she now has. It's a sad, sad, sad story. In two years' time, this beautiful, promising young woman with her life ahead of her has been used up by people just looking so the next time somebody tells you, well, we're just looking at the menu here, tell them that story. Make them realize what damage is being caused. So let's break into our group discussions here. We've got four questions there. Just concentrate on the first two right now. Take the first two minutes in silence. Take that for your time to gather your thoughts before opening it up for discussion. When you do open it up, for discussion. The question is, how has our culture's attitude about sex changed in your lifetime, and what problems 
is this change causing? I know I've left you here in the mud <laughs> with this, but we're going to look at the, the beauty of our sexuality that God gives us. Now we've just saw Satan's plan of slavery and shame and death that he lures us into with, with lust and how we listen to the, the worldly wisdom and get caught up in it. But there's a better plan. There's a much better plan. God has a plan for us in our bodies. The question is, do we trust it? Do we trust him in this plan? His plan leads to joy and authentic freedom and good relationships. And so why wouldn't we trust his plan over Satan's plan, but it takes some time for us to learn his plan and to put ourselves into it and begin to, to trust it. But his plan, it starts back with the first commandment, not having other gods before our creator, the one true God. It goes back to the second command of glorifying God in his name, and it goes back to the third command of remembering to keep holy the Lord's day and preserving our Sundays to pursue God in worship, to pursue God in rest, and pursue relationships with our families. If we don't go back and do those and do those well and set a firm foundation, it's going to be hard to follow and trust his plan. But if we do, we can break out of that cycle of confusion and we can enter into a different cycle of joy and, and happiness. Now, God's plan for our sexuality we're going to talk about four different aspects of his plan so you can see how this plays out. And it starts with creation and how we're co-creators with God in our bodies. And we'll look at the part of his plan that calls us into the, the virtue of chastity, the virtue of self-mastery. And it'll show how in the sacrament of marriage how Jesus is the model for a holy marriage. And it all leads to salvation, and that salvation is through Jesus' body and through our body. So when we go back to Genesis and look at the story of creation, we can see that God gave the gift of our bodies to us in creation and how we participate with him in creation. Creation is continuing right now. And we participate with God and therefore we glorify God through our sexuality as we participate with him. So you see, for five days, God created the sun and the moon and the planets and the stars and the water and the fish and the birds of the air, all the amazing plants and all the amazing animals. And he saw that all of these were good, but he was not yet satisfied. He knew that there was something greater to create. And so on the sixth day, God created mankind. He created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Finally, having created man and woman, he's satisfied. And he says, not that what he's created is good, but he said it is very good. Man and woman in his creation was the crown jewel of his creation, the most holy and sacred of all of the animals. And he created them male and, feed, male and female. Then, in the very next verse, he gave specific instructions as male and female as to what we are to do. Those very specific instructions were be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. He didn't say with his next instructions, go and fornicate and have sexual pleasures and, and be self-seeking in your bodies. But he gave very specific instructions as to what to do. He was not unclear about it at all. And so with such a great gift in our bodies, it also comes with great responsibilities great responsibilities to use what God gave us and to do so in the way that God intends. And so when we look at the story of creation, there's a tremendous amount in this story we can take from it. 
So the second part of God's plan here involves the virtue of chastity. And so Jesus offers us himself as an example of chastity. But we think of chastity and we think, you know, that was easy for Jesus. He's God after all. <laughs> you know, I'm a mere human being and I'm susceptible to the temptations. I don't have the gift of divinity to be able to recognize it and to be strong against it. But Jesus doesn't leave us on our own. He gives us lots of examples in scripture. And one of the best examples that he gives is the father of Jesus, St. Joseph. And we often see St. Joseph holding lilies. And lilies, as he holds those, it's a symbol of chastity and virginity. And you'll see that if you haven't recognized it. He's often holding lilies. And this is his way of showing us that he is Mary's protector. And that he's protecting Mary and her virginity by his chastity. What is chastity? Chastity, it's the virtue of self-mastery. It's the opposite of slavery. Instead of being enslaved and controlled by our desires, we have self-mastery so that we get to choose what is right in, in our behavior and direct it in a way that is good. And we can choose what is greater instead of settling for what is less. So that's what, what chastity and the, and the virtue of chastity provides to us. It allows us to not settle for the counterfeit, but to choose what is authentic and real. Chastity doesn't just pertain to those who have chosen a religious life, our, our nuns and our priests. It pertains to all of us. Whatever our vocation is, we need to have the virtue of chastity to live our vocation and to do it well. So it's for those who are married so that we can be strong against the temptations that we have as, as a married man or a married woman. It's for the single and for those with same-sex attraction. It's for the widowed as well. We all have a vocation and we need to not get caught up in that disordered sexual pleasure. We need to be strong and have the chastity to be able to have clarity of thought so we can recognize God's purpose in our lives and not get caught up in the confusion that blinds us from God's purpose. Another misunderstanding about chastity is that it's, it's about abstaining. If somebody's living a chaste life, that they're abstaining from sex. And this is, this is the misunderstanding because it, it's not about abstaining, but it's about using our sexuality for its intended purpose, as God intended, as procreated and unitive. And to doing so within the sacrament of marriage and to participate with God in creation. And finally, contrary to what our culture says, chastity is not a sign of weakness. Our culture says, oh, he's abstaining, what a wimp. Totally the opposite. You think of somebody who has the, the courage and the strength to stand up to today's temptations and say, no, I'm going to preserve myself. It takes a tremendous amount of fortitude and strength. Another misconception there. A few years back, there was a, a very popular television show, and it was about a group of colleagues that worked together, and there was this one episode where they just had a horrible week. All these bad things happened. And at the end of the week, they got together and they were winding down and having a glass of wine and, and uh, the conversation got into each of them telling the story of when they gave their virginity to someone. And one after the other, they went through and they elaborated on their stories about how juicy it was and all of the excitement and they laughed and had a good time. And then there was one man who hadn't told his story. And this, this man in the, in the series was very well respected, very handsome man. And they kept goading him on to say, come on, tell us, tell us, tell us. And he hesitated, he pushed back, and finally he said, okay, my first time was on my wedding night with my wife. 
You could feel the air go out of the room when he shared that he had preserved himself, what is holy and sacred, so that he could offer himself as the perfect, holy, and pure gift for his spouse on his wedding night. What strength is that? What courage is that? We need to restore that courage in our families and in our societies. We need to help our children, our grandchildren understand the great gift of their bodies and how it's to be preserved as that perfect gift in chastity. What could be more beautiful? Why aren't we teaching our kids how beautiful this is? The next part of God's plan is the sacrament of marriage and how the sacrament of holy matrimony and the gift of our bodies to one another calls us into a total and exclusive exchange with our spouse. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells us, this is the will of God, your holiness, that you refrain from immorality, that each of you know how to acquire a wife for himself in holiness and honor, not in lustful passions as do the Gentiles who do not know God. For God did not call us into impurity but to holiness. Now Jesus, in his example on the cross, his example of coming and living among us and preserving the purity of himself as the perfect sacrifice, he shows us that in the sacrament of marriage, we're to do the same thing. We're supposed to come to our spouse freely and fully, exclusively, pure and without blemish, as Jesus did. Now, in the sacrament of marriage, the couple comes together and they exchange vows. And the priest announces, I now pronounce you husband and wife. But the sacrament of holy matrimony is not complete yet. It's not complete until that man and that woman consummate their marriage in the marital act together and give themselves to one another fully and completely in their bodies. You see how our sexuality is holy and sacred, not something to be discarded and cheapened? And this all leads us to what God wants for all of us and what we want for us and for our children and grandchildren, and that is salvation where we can find complete joy and complete freedom from the temptations of the world when we are with Jesus in heaven. So through creation and through chastity and looking at Jesus and the sacrifice in his body, he offers us salvation in our body. And we see that our bodies are very critical to salvation. When we look in Catechism, paragraph 1015, which tells us the flesh is the hinge of salvation. We believe in God, who is creator of the flesh. We believe in the Word made flesh in order to redeem the flesh. We believe in the resurrection of the flesh, the fulfillment of both the creation and the redemption of the flesh. Our bodies are the hinge of salvation. It's so important that we understand how vital our bodies are in God's plan of salvation for us. When we follow God's plan, we can break free of that cycle of confusion. When we trust in God and in his, his wisdom, we have clarity of thought and clarity of mind to be able to cut through the chase and realize things are pretty clear cut here. We don't have to get caught up in the confusion of that gray space society wants us to think that there is. And in our clarity of thought, we can make good choices about our sexuality and how to use our sexuality and that, that virtue of chastity. We have that clarity of thought for those good choices. And in our good choices, we build good relationships, strong relationships. And in our relationships being strong, we now have that union that we all desire. 
that union with one another, that union with God. Isn't this a much better plan than what Satan offers us in the worldly wisdom? I think so. So how do we put this in action? What are the practical things that we can do? Once again, we need to go back to the first, second, and third commandments. We need to pursue God and put God front and center in our lives, the most important in our lives, and get rid of all the distractions, get things in the right priority. We need to be humble and admit to any lustful vices that we have. And when we fall, we need to realize that God gives us a sacrament of confession. And this is something that we would do on a, on a frequent, regular basis. Another practical step, honor the sacred purpose of our bodies and to incorporate that into our actions. And then cultivate and commit to the virtue of chastity. Don't just leave it to chance, but truly cultivate this. Another is to eliminate all sources of temptations. So if there's any TV shows, unsubscribe to those. Maybe even take the TV out completely. That's what it takes. Remove any magazines that are tempting you or any of those relationships that maybe you have in the workplace that aren't appropriate. Completely eliminate those. Maybe drive a different way home so you're not driving past the entertainment district. On your phones and on your computers, get an internet blocker. Don't just settle for the free ones. Pay for something that's got some real quality to it. And if you can't afford one of the good quality ones, find a way to pay for it. Because the cost of an internet blocker <laughs> is so much less than the cost of the damage that not having one can cause. There's something in your life that is causing you to fall and be tempted to temptations. Tear it out of your life, completely eliminate it and get it out of your way. Make it easy to be good and hard to be bad. And then once you tear out and you pull out the temptations in your life, there's going to be a void there in your life. It's like somebody quitting to smoke. They have to replace it with something else. We have to do the same thing here. And so we need to quickly fill that void with something positive and constructive. And then if the problem persists, take steps to persevere and to seek help. I've left some specific uh, organizations and, and website addresses in your workbook. And if you're thinking, you know, I don't know that I'm up to fight this battle. It's too big of a hill to climb. The chains of lust and the slavery of lust are too strong. Don't give up hope because you're not alone. You're not alone in this because Jesus is there with you. Jesus knows what you're going through and he wants you to come to him and receive his grace in the sacrament of confession and to be healed by him. You're not alone. There was a time where I thought that I was alone in this. I struggled with pornography. I was an early adopter of the internet. And it got its hooks in me. And I became its slave. I went to a men's conference. And I heard a man tell his story of how Pornography literally destroyed his marriage, ruined his career. I have never seen a human being sob like this man sobbed as he told his story. Right after he told his story, they opened up for confession. I went and confessed my sin and Jesus, in his mercy, forgave me. By the grace of God, I don't struggle with pornography anymore. It's easy to turn my eye away from it because I've learned the damage that it causes. And by the grace of God, it doesn't have it hooks in me anymore, but I know, I know, I know, I'm only one step away from stupid. 
and it's right there. So I have to ever be vigilant and on my guard to make sure I don't step in that pile of stupid and get caught up in it again. Don't feel that you're alone. That's where Satan wants you to feel if you're struggling with this. But God in his grace wants to embrace you and let you know that he's ready to forgive and you're not alone. Now let's talk about our children and how to prepare them and protect them from the lures of, of adultery. And we have provided for you in your work with some useful insights and some information to prepare you to educate your children and your grandchildren. And I say the word conversations with them because there's no such thing as a talk about something that is so vital and so important. It's got to be a conversation that starts when they're young. Now, we don't start with the things that they don't need to know when they're four and five, but we start with them to talk to them about how God has given them a great gift in their body. And we start to talk to them about how touching, inappropriate touching, isn't something that they should allow. And to come and tell mommy and daddy if somebody does. But we start when they're very young before they've been exposed to the ugliness of what we've talked about today. Before they've been violated by a, a predator we need to start talking with them very young. As they get a little bit older, we can start to talk to them about the Holy Sacrament of Matrimony and start to show them the beauty of it and how the Holy Sacrament of Matrimony is not what the world is portraying. It's beautiful and it's a gift from God and how their bodies are a part of it. And as they get older, you can start talking to them about how to preserve themselves as that perfect gift. Teach them about chastity and the greatness and how strong a person is if they pursue chastity and how chastity helps them to not trade something that's greater for something less. Help them to understand that so that they can ward off the temptations and the messages of the world that confuses them. In regards to abstinence, don't focus on what not to do. Focus on how they should live their lives, how they should be protecting themselves, and how they should know that their bodies are a part of their salvation. Now, when we talk to our kids about sexuality, is it going to be a little awkward? <laughs> yeah. And what do the kids say? Oh, mom and dad, you know, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. They taught us at school and so forth. Well, that's their way of getting out of feeling awkward. Persevere in that conversation. Get through that awkwardness. Get them past that awkwardness so that you can have a good, healthy conversation and allow them to ask questions. And it's not just us telling them what to do and what not to do, but it's a conversation. And it happens over time. And when we start when they're very young, it becomes more natural. And it doesn't stop when they become teenagers. It continues on into their college years where the real temptations start to, to play out. And, and even beyond, as they become adults, and maybe they're tempted in their workplace, it, make them feel comfortable to come and have that conversation. Let them know your failings because they can learn through our failings and they can see that we're human beings too, and they can feel together with us, and we can understand what they're going through. The action plan and family activity is to review the presentation notes from tonight and think about those that you felt most uncomfortable with and spend some time praying to God, quiet time with God to say, what is it that's causing me to feel so awkward about this? And as a family activity, Draft a general outline for having an intentional, well-thought-out conversation with your children about their bodies and their sexuality. Put this together and, and talk with your spouse about it. If you're a grandparent, maybe have the conversation with your children on how they might be able to approach this and start while their kids are young so that they can grow up with these conversations 
and feel comfortable with it. Next time, we'll focus on the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. Uh, we won't get in the mud so much on, on this commandment here. Um, this commandment I really like. It tells us not to steal, but it calls us to generosity. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Creator of the universe and redeemer of our souls, give us your grace to grow in your commandments each day and your mercy when we stumble. You are the Lord, our God. We will not have other gods before you. We will not use your name in vain, but will glorify your name in all our words and actions. We will remember to keep holy the Lord's day by preserving it only for worshiping in you, resting in you, and for relationship with family and friends. We will honor our father and mother and teach our children to do the same. We will not kill, but will honor and protect life from conception to natural death. We will not commit adultery, but will honor our bodies for the sacred purpose of new life. We will not steal, but instead cultivate a heart generosity. We will not lie, but rather honor truth in our words and actions. And we will not covet our neighbor's spouse, and we will not covet the things of this world, but rather we will set our heart on building treasures in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go ahead and break into your group discussions with the last uh, two questions in your workbook. Number three there is how do we accomplish our mission to restore the preciousness and miracle of our bodies for future generations? And number four, what is the most important lesson you learned today that you need to teach your children and your grandchildren? Thank you and I look forward to continuing next time.